0: She thumps a cane and drinks champagne, just from a and judgmental, but we can guarantee that she's a quintessential Lady D, Who recognises great potential, what would Danbury do?
1: Welcome to What Would Danbury Do, your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to V. This episode of What Would Danbury Do is brought to you by Love at First, the new sweet slow burn from Kate Claiborne. I've had a cold for the last few days, which is why you get my best Cruella de Vil impersonation today. But the only bright spot was lying in bed and reading this book, the quirky, character-driven storytelling you need in your life. So it starts with a twist of the Romeo and Juliet balcony scene, and then builds to the possibility of redressing missed opportunities. Along the way, there are whispered conversations, a little bit of sabotage, and sparks and chemistry all over the place. It's Second Chance, Enemies to Lovers, Found Family, and Slow Burn, and I loved it. You can find out more by visiting kateclayborne.com or jump straight to pre-ordering from your favourite independent bookstore. We also highly suggest following Kate on Twitter, at Kate Claiborne. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at Pod and Instagram, at WWDDPod, and join the conversation using the hashtag WWDDPod. Today, we're talking about Bridgerton on Netflix, Episode Three The Art of the Swoon. Come for the Duke. That's it. That's the introduction.
2: Because it's the masturbation episode. (laughs)
0: Oh, it's finished.
1: (laughs) We're going to talk about this later because I know that we sort of try and move through the um, episode chronologically, Mm. but there is a part, actually, throughout this whole episode, there are so many masturbation in jokes all the way through that I totally missed the first time around. So it was sort of like (laughs) a little Easter eggs, little (laughs) Easter eggs of fun for me to go through and
2: find. No, no, no. They're they're not Easter eggs. They're jade eggs. (laughs)
1: God, that would be one hell of an Easter egg hunt, wouldn't
2: it? This is horrific. Let's not do
1: <laughs> <sighs> Both Daphne and Marina are finding husband hunting exhausting, but for very different reasons. The ladies Danbury and Bridgerton feel very smug about the continued courting of Daphne by Simon. Anthony's mistress, the opera singer Sienna, gives him an excellent dressing down, but not the fun kind. The handsome Prince Friedrich arrives in London to visit his aunt, Queen Charlotte, and hunt for his princess. Sienna, Marina, and Daphne all end the episode heartbroken. Featuring an important personal lesson, one hell of a fuck you dress, fake correspondence, and an art lesson. Hi, I'm Rudy. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm Adele.
2: This episode opens with a dream sequence. A very sexually um, suggestive, but not explicit dream sequence.
1: Daphne's about to have a sexual awakening.
2: That's exactly what I wrote down too. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's certainly having feelings, because we also get this like lovely little montage of, I'm trying to think what else is in it, but all I wrote down was the spoon. <laughs>
1: We sort of learn a little bit about that Daphne's having a little bit more agency in her life because she's been allowed to reject three suitors that week alone. So she's clearly having loin feelings, but not about any of the people who are actually coming out to propose to her. And then we go to the spoon.
3: I Mm -hmm. do not find the way that he leaked that spoon to be hot.
1: I know that we haven't really had the big discussion about female gaze yet, but it like this is the sort of thing that I think of when I think about the female gaze because how how cliched and understood would it have been if we'd watched Daphne eat a banana, for example, you don't often get this kind of suggestive scene. Where it's clearly about women and giving women pleasure as opposed to, and, and you know, and that sexual awakening is about Daphne finding pleasure and not necessarily about Simon finding his pleasure in Daphne. I
3: just, it's so bad. I was just thinking, Spooner but it's so stupid. <laughs> Just I do of, like uh, that they, they were at Gunter's though, like because if you've read historical Romance, you know about Gunter's.
2: It's like the Vauxhall thing. Like, we're getting
1: all the hot spots
2: of a historical romance.
1: Well, I guess all the hot spots of Regency London, right?
2: Yes, because that's a real place and time,
1: <laughs>
2: which I sometimes forget. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask about whether you guys think that it's weird Daphne and Simon are flirting by using terminology of war, but very specifically Wellington and his troops. And like, that war is literally happening. Like, that's where George is.
1: Sorry, this is a really interesting point for me because I wrote a paper about it once. Oh my God, I love it. Go talk us through (laughs) I talked about it in the context of Jane Austen, about how the militia and military people show up so often in Jane Austen novels, but there's never any mention of the war. And in my research and like looking at letters of the time and, and what was happening, like the war is so thoroughly removed, particularly from the upper classes, a because you don't get news back from the war for months sometimes because communication things break down it's not like there's photojournalists embedded in with the troops anymore or at that time it's you know the news cycle is so far removed from what is actually happening on the battlefront that nobody actually knows what is going on at any given time particularly people who are of Daphne's class like it is quite common for I think it's second sons, right? First sons inherit, second sons go into the military, and third sons go into the church. Um, But those second sons are going to be wealthy enough to be able to purchase officerships, essentially. They're not going to be on the ground. They're going to be in the tents at the back or on horses. I'm not suggesting that they don't see horrific things during the war, but even for that class, the war is more removed than it would be from the foot soldiers' Plus, there's just this idea that, you know, what happens at war stays at war. So the levels of remove from what is going on in London to what is going on on the battlefield are just layered upon layered upon layered through distance, through time, through class expectations, through what is considered proper at that time as well. So,
2: okay, I feel slightly better about this then. But I'm also (laughs) really glad that I asked because that was quite cool to learn. So we go into iconic duo of Penelope and Marina, and they are waiting for a letter to arrive from George, who is fighting in Spain. This is where we're also seeing the Featheringtons turned like super clearly into Cinderella family. Whether we are positioning Penelope or Marina as Cinderella is kind of unclear, But it's very obvious that Mrs. Featherington and the two elder daughters are the ugly stepdaughters and the evil stepmother. That's coming through pretty loud and clear. Right down to this is where we find out that a prince has arrived. (laughs)
1: I think my favorite part of that whole scene where you're quite, actually you're quite right. I really like the Cinderella parallel that you just drew um, was Mrs. Featherington, uh, rather Lady Featherington bursting in and yelling at Penelope for cavorting with the expectant, (laughs) which is probably my favorite line of the whole episode.
3: Penelope is so kind and generous, but it's probably the first time in her life that she's had someone living in her household that's treated her with
1: respect and kindness back. You're kinder than I am because I thought, well, this is the first time that Penelope has had somebody in her household that she has more power than. Oh, Can it be She's both? always been, I mean, it could be both. That's true.
2: No, you're right, Kate. Like this is, this is the first time that she has had more power than, I mean, other than servants and. And staff in the house. This is the first time. That's the thing. This is the first time that she's had somebody who is a peer of some kind that she does actually have more power than. And so, on one hand, it's very nice to see them bond together. But on the other, it's um, hmm. it's
1: not strictly benevolent from Penelope's point of view. I think. I think that there's two things going on at the same time there for Penelope. So we go from from Lady Featherington being all, don't cavort with the expectant, and then it's time for you to dress in the family colours anyway, which is just delightful on every level. But one of the things that I think that this episode did really well that I really enjoyed on the rewatch, apart from dropping tiny little sexual awakening jade eggs all the way through... <laughs> is they, they kept doing these tiny little character exposition scenes that if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't notice. And if you didn't notice them, you didn't necessarily lose anything out of the episode. But when you saw them, they added so much to the episode. And one of them happens sort of in the first time that we see all the Bridgertons together for this episode where they're all at in, um, in the drawing, the drawing room. room. Yeah, and Benedict is like sprawled across the... Whatever the Regency version of a couch is, the settee, I suppose. And Daphne sort of goes to sit down and she just gives him this look. And he sort of like, I don't know, he does like the grown up version so of happy. sticking his tongue out at her, he, with, with, but without ever sticking his tongue out, he like just gives her a look back and then like moves his legs aside. And it was, I'm just really enjoying Screen Benedict. And I'm so conflicted on so many levels about how much I love Screen Benedict. <laughs>
2: I picked up some interesting parallels between Benedict and Daphne over the course of this episode, and I'm going to like sort of flag them as we hit each of those
1: scenes. I'm looking forward to that because I'm going to tell you all of the little scenes that I saw and that I just loved.
2: <laughs> we head from the Bridgerton drawing room into one of my favorite of all of the classicalized contemporary songs, Bad Guy.
1: By Billy It's
3: kind of matched by the ball, which I like to call the bird ball in my head because there's so bird cages everywhere birds. and everyone has feathers in their head. And it's kind of ridiculous. The amount of thought that has gone into everything in this series is kind of mind boggling.
2: I don't know how familiar you guys are with Northanger Abbey and when Catherine and Mr. Tilney dance for the first time and he has this like really ludicrous conversation with her about we've got to hit these talking beats and then we can be rational so he tells her what they've got to talk about and then he specifically asks her those questions that's what I kept thinking every time Daphne would dance with a new suitor and she would ask these questions and they'd give these banal answers and you could just kind of see her thinking like just got to get through this and then we can <laughs> drop the pretense.
1: Regency speed dating. <laughs> yeah, it was enjoyable, and I think look, it was it was really well done in terms of showing Daphne sort of absolutely single minded about what she wants out of the season and taking all of her advantages and just failing at on every level until <gasps> who arrives but the hot DJ from Pitch Perfect. Is that who he is? Yes. Well, I don't know. Apparently he's been in other things. That's what I know him from. So our poor prince arrives and, you know, causes a little stir through the ballroom. And then Daphne snorts. Twice. Daphne and
2: Simon give a running commentary of the prince doing the rounds. And it is the actual cutest.
1: (laughs) I mean we we've all seen this the show before so we know what's going to happen but I think this is a really solid grounding for this idea that Daphne and Simon are friends and that there's a lot that connects them outside of attraction you know there's that similar sense of humor they can keep pace with each other a lot of books and television shows sort of strive for banter And I think that you can write banter, but if the leads don't have any chemistry, it's never going to work. But I think this is banter. It works so well between these two actors and the script does it really well. And it's just creates this warm glow of affection for them because it's so very clear that they're enjoying their relationship as well.
2: Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the fact that out of anyone... Simon is the only one who makes Daphne really laugh and, like, laugh in an unacceptable way. And I'm going to argue that that snort, that's a jade egg. Oh. That's her coming.
1: Interesting.
3: I thought it was all really cute and charismatic, but until I got pulled out at the end, because I don't think Roger Jean can do a fake laugh, he
1: can't fake laugh. So, okay, but But... in the very next scene, we see him laughing with Anthony.
2: It's not quite the next scene because the next scene is Sorry. it's the Sienna and the Modiste who definitely has a name that I have not forgotten.
1: Genevieve. I think there's a lot of parallels between Genevieve and Sienna's friendship and what they're trying to set up between Marina and Penelope as well. Like I thought, it was an interesting contrast between, you know, the friendship over here in the aristocratic classes versus the friendship that they have. Down here, sort of in the demi monde. I mean, I, I agree that um, Genevieve being all like, all of these women focusing on their sewing, and I'm like, you're a fucking dressmaker. <laughs> like, what do you focus on? But I liked. I thought I liked it a lot, actually.
3: I thought it was good to have that point of view of like they don't aspire to have that life, or maybe they secretly do, but it's about having agency and also pitying some of these women women for like the quality of their life. That's just sounds horr- horrifically boring to them and without purpose.
2: So in that scene is when Sienna says that she is going to come up with a plan that will mean that she doesn't have to rely on Anthony. And that plan seems to suggest that she might proposition
1: Simon is there a rule like is there a rule among regency bucks that you don't sleep with your friends uh, mistress? Like is that like an ex girlfriend situation or is like everything well, up everyone up?
3: got syphilis probably because they didn't have a rule.
2: I also in a contemporary setting don't believe in that rule because people don't get to own other people.
3: Well, yeah, I'm on board with that one too.
2: Then we get to I'm going to call this my actual favourite scene of this episode, and I'm not ashamed to say it, and it's, I'm fairly sure, lifted straight out of the book. It is Daphne and Anthony down in the kitchen to have a glass of warm milk, but they don't know how to light a fire, so, <laughs> so they settle for cold milk, and it just, it's so endearing.
3: For me... It's just nice to have those two actors having a scene with each other that isn't them being cross with each other and actually having a warm connection with one another, but also playing a little bit of the
1: humor of it as well. Anthony knows, but Daphne doesn't know that they're currently sharing a similar situation because he does that like moony face and then something says something along the lines of, you know, sometimes people aren't meant to be together and then like, looks aside and looks very sad. And Daphne, (laughs) you know, just assumes that he's talking about her and Simon, but we all know that he's also talking about himself and Sienna as well. So there's a, there's a shared heartbreak there, even though Daphne isn't aware that it's shared. Yeah.
2: So we, we head into the next day to Somerset house where a new wing has been opened up so that we can look at art I think that this scene is quite interesting because we are getting a lot of different characters take on art and it is very much a window into who they are as people, as characters. So we do have like our proto-feminist analysis from Eloise and Penelope, but we also have Benedict who is doing his like...
3: <laughs> his meet cute moments, Strong opinions, no ability. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, which, yeah, is like <laughs> Lady Danbury has encouraged him to insult an artist to his face. The way and I what laughed, is going to be man. the
1: beginning of a beautiful relationship.
2: I have such high hopes for that
1: relationship. Please listen, Chris Van Dusen, because we need this to happen.
2: And then, of course, there is Simon and Daphne who are having their conversation about a painting that Simon has donated that once belonged to his mother and it is very much a metaphor. Discuss.
3: I think Phoebe is fucking amazing in that scene. And the camera is largely on her face talking about that landscape. And it comes in so tight on her face. And like, obviously later it comes back to show their hands almost touching and then beginning to have that intimacy of physical intimacy between them. I kind of almost wish, and people would kill me for saying this, but we welcome hate mail. Says
1: you, I'm the one who reads the emails.
3: uh, directed to me, at Snarky Like, it just stayed on her face with him just turning to look at her at the end. Like, I almost wish it was a bit more pared back, that the hands didn't actually touch.
2: (gasps) Oh, no, you're wrong. But okay there
1: you go, there you go. No. two things first because when um i basically i just want to show off here because i know something and i i think that my, uh, maybe other people may not know it and i will fully credit stuff you missed in history class which is a podcast that i learned this thing on but benedict says you know why wasn't this painting skied with the rest of the Dobbs? skied is when you would place a painting up above the vision line of the people who were attending the exhibition because the paintings that were less accomplished or by less important artists would be placed highest up on the ceiling and that's not particularly able to attract the viewership or the attention from everybody else and a daub is like a crude painting like you just sort of daubed paint onto the canvas and I was like I know what that means. I know what Skide means. And also Benedict's being a dick here, but that's okay because he and the artist are going to fall in love and it will
2: all be forgiven. So, number one, I didn't know what those words mean. I <laughs> thought it meant something different. But weirdly, I did know it, it was really kind of competitive about like where you were placed on the wall in a gallery. And there's a revisionist history episode about it. The first time that a woman was placed at eye level and given like a place of prominence it then didn't happen again for like another hundred years <laughs> and because also that's the episode that he did that features julia gillard <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> former australian prime minister julia gillard our one and only female prime minister mm-hmm. so far
1: sorry i thought it was stuff Mr history class it may have been revisionist history both are great podcasts you should check them out one of them taught me what sky means <laughs> so now i am sharing it with you our listeners, so you two can look like a pretentious wank next time it comes up in conversation.
2: Are you done with your pretentious wank? You had two, didn't you?
1: (laughs) Oh Well, my second one was that there was another little scene there when Daphne arrives, and I think it's lovely that Gregory and Hyacinth sort of dash in first, and then Daphne arrives, and there's this teeny tiny little scene where the prince is talking with Cressida. He looks up, sees Daphne, and, like, bolts, (laughs) just, come straight at Daphne and again it could have been like it was a split second of a scene but it was so well done because the you know it, it says a lot about the prince's interest and also sort of sets up what's going to happen a little bit later with Cressida.
2: So my pretentious wank is like maybe more of a provocation but I am wondering if the conversation that Eloise and Penelope have where they are effectively talking about the male gaze of art is then kind of soon after juxtaposed with the discussion that Simon and Daphne are having, which is framed in what could be called a female gaze because it's featuring on hands. It's featuring on like faces.
1: I think that you might be right not necessarily only because of the way that it's shot, although that plays into it as well, but also because of the conversation that's being held. Like they talk about, you know, the grand and impressive paintings of, that were favorites of Simon's father, but then they talk about the intimate and softer paintings that were favorite of his mother. And rather than devaluing, I suppose, the quietness of that painting, they talk, uh, Daphne, Daphne, provides this analysis that underlines the importance of the painting and proves, I think, that it has a worthy place in this exhibition, even if it may be passed over as not as grandiose or as important as some of the other paintings that Simon may have loaned to the exhibition. So I don't disagree, I think, but I think it's there in the dialogue as well as the framing of the shot.
2: So from that, we also need to talk about the titular swoon.
1: Like realistically, A, if you're going to swoon, you want to make sure that you're swooning in the direction of the most eligible person in the room who would then be obligated to catch you. But I thought in particular, Cressida just added like those little details that really make a swoon spectacular, like... If you notice her hand, the back of her hand is just pressed gently to her brow so that you can understand that she's overcome and somehow her dress stayed in place. Is it artful if it's complete bullshit? I would argue
2: that makes it the most artful. <laughs> like that that is the bullshit is what makes it artful.
1: It's in no way a medical issue. Thus, it is entirely performance art, in which case she's, you know, she's right up there.
2: Reading romance, like you get really into sort of the idea of the swoon and fainting couches and it all kind of becomes part of your vocabulary, right? When I was like, oh, 17, I dragged my friends into a furniture shop because I saw what I was calling a blue velvet fainting couch. And I kept talking about it as a fainting couch and how much I wanted it. And the shop assistant overheard me and asked if I faint a lot. And I was like...
1: <laughs> Maybe just like hang around that one couch all the time. Just forever. Just in case. Yeah. I've got to confess something.
3: When I look at Cressida, all I can think of when I look at her very severe hairline, The hairpiece and everything is that she looks like a dinosaur.
1: (laughs) I can see it, actually. There is something a little reptilian about that hairstyle. There's, as you said, the severe hairline. And then it is a little frilly. So Simon leaves the exhibition. And his driver, I guess, says to him hey, man, we got a boot if we're going to make it to the opera. And Simon is like, no, I'm going to go home today. I'm sure that the two of you are very familiar with the concept of magic hoo-ha. <laughs> I don't know who actually came up with it, but I learned about it from Jenny Cruzy, who spoke about it as this romance novel trope wherein once the hero has had sex with the heroine, all of a sudden no other hoo-ha is going to do. And even if he'd been like the most rakish rake that had ever raked, once he'd had a taste of this magic hoo-ha, like that was it. He was done. He was monogamous to this hoo-ha for the rest of his life. So I am really impressed by Daphne who is in fact able to magic Simon with just a little bit of hand-holding. I believe the
2: name magic hoo or term whatever came from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Mm. I think that it's from Beyond Heaving Bosoms.
3: I mean, that's the thing we've just been talking about, yeah? Like romance community does have a very interesting vocabulary in a way of communicating. We're a subgroup that has its own language (laughs) because
2: it was the mighty wang and the magic hoo-ha
0: did you know that 82 million households tuned into at least one episode of bridgerton on netflix the first month it was available And, did you know that Bridgerton is based on a romance novel series by Julia Quinn? Lots of people who have never picked up a romance novel before are dipping in as a result of the Netflix adaptation. If you are one of those people who don't identify as a romance reader, but decided to read one or more of the Bridgerton novels as a result of watching the show, I am asking for your help. That's right, you. But who am I? My name is Andrea Martucci, and I'm currently working on a research project to discover how Bridgerton fans are engaging with romance novels and how they perceive the romance fiction genre. I am the host of a podcast devoted to unpacking romance novels called Shelf Love Podcast. And the reason that I'm interested in Bridgerton fans specifically is because this is a a once-in-a-decade opportunity where a romance text is part of a larger cultural conversation, which means that lots of new people all at once are giving romance a try. What I want to understand is how people get into romance, or don't, and how new readers perceive genre conventions. So here's how you can take part in this research project. I have a survey that probably just takes about five minutes to fill out. You can find the survey and learn more about the research project by going to bit.ly slash Bridgerton Research. That's bit.ly slash Bridgerton Research. You can also find more information on my website, shelflovepodcast.com. That's bit.ly slash Bridgerton Research or shelflovepodcast.com. I'm going to be presenting this research at the Popular Culture Association Conference in June 2021, as well as discussing it on Shelf Love Podcast later this year. Thank you so much for helping with this project. I really appreciate you. That link one more time is bit.ly slash Bridgerton Research.
2: This is a really small scene, but I am very interested in discussing it purely because of our bonus episode about gossip, the queen is kind of berating the prince for not having caught the attention of Daphne Bridgerton. And I wrote down why does she care about Daphne? Because something that I can't quite let go of is that Queen Charlotte is a biracial monarch and her concern around Daphne and other debutantes like her, it feels like she is recognising the precariousness of her own situation. Like, Queen Charlotte does not have as much power as this show wants us to believe. And the cracks show, because of how, I guess, invested she is in the inner workings of, like, the lives of her subjects.
1: I think you're really right. I think that, that this is something that the show doesn't really address, although it's so interesting that it comes through in this way. I think that the show is sort of setting up Queen Charlotte as just almost a ridiculous figure a little bit in terms of, you know, she's bored and has nothing to do, so she meddles in the lives of her the aristocrats. And I think that the Queen's investiture in the matches of the season and in who is is marrying whom creates a little tension in this idea that love can solve all problems. And I think that the Queen is working really hard to try and make it so that the power that was given to her in this opportunity is then cemented through the joining together of powerful families.
2: Hmm. That's an idea I'm going to sit with for a bit. I mean,
1: I don't think that the show necessarily thought about this. Thought about this. I don't actually. <laughs> no, but I, think, I don't think
3: so I, I think they've sort of treated her as very fickle.
1: And but I, I think it's I, interesting that it can be there as well, agreed. that you could read, that you can read Queen Charlotte as Yes, being this sort of ridiculous, flighty Material character. Type. Yeah. Mm, but you can also look at it. Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on because I want to talk about Lady Featherington <laughs> in a similar way in that you can read her in two different ways. And the show seems to be leaning towards one way. I think because it suits the tone of the show better and sort of the the purpose of the show to be fantastical and enjoyable and lighthearted but there you there's definitely a reading that can be done underneath it that suggests tension and less social cohesion than the surface reading would would believe that it had and you know that I always want to
2: be like doing the deepest readings on the most frivolous work like anyway
1: <laughs> that's my job that's why I'm here
2: <laughs> okay so Earlier, I said that there is an interesting parallel that happens between Daphne and Benedict across this episode. I wanted to talk about it a little bit because it is particularly interesting to me that Eloise is sort of like pivotal for both of these moments and the way that she engages with Daphne is super different to the way that she engages with Benedict. So we have this scene of Daphne sitting at the piano and like working over and over and over a piece that we come to learn is her own composition. And at the same time, Benedict is sitting in somewhere else in the house with a sketchbook Sketchbook. and is drawing hands over and over and over and then scrapping them because they're not quite right yet. The way that Eloise talks to Daphne about practicing what is her art is incredibly dismissive and really quite harsh. And then later we're going to hear her talk to Benedict about how he should just keep practicing and keep working at these drawings, these sketches that he's doing because practice is how you get good. And he just, like, I was like, our baby feminist has some things she needs to work on.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, but we skipped over the poverty scare tactic scene. So after Marina is very rude to a potential suitor at Somerset House, Lady Featherington takes her into a poor part of town where there are people who are they are sweeping their houses, they're not very well-dressed, um, and there are children sort of sitting in the street as a way of pointing out what Marina's future is if she doesn't start working with Lady Featherington to get herself secure and in a decent position. And it reminded me a little bit about Mrs. Bennett, who in Pride and Prejudice, of course, is also played as ridiculous, but is actually incredibly clear-eyed about the situation for her daughters if they're not married before their father dies. So Mrs. Bennet is played as ridiculous and Lady Featherington is played as a villain. They're both approaching this situation in a way that speaks to their own knowledge and experience and recognition of what the future looks like for women who are not independently wealthy or who have a child out of wedlock or who don't conform to society's expectations and what those futures look like. And I think it's an interesting parallel between Marina, who has in fact gone ahead and done something that society has dictated that she is not to do Mm -hmm. and Eloise who just talks about doing things that society tells her not to do I thought that was a really interesting parallel between two young women who are in a similar situation about wanting to press against what society expects them to do and the the way that their family structures are set up their support networks are set up but also an interesting parallel there between these older women in these regency stories who are often played as getting in the way of our young heroines Mm -hmm. when realistically they're the ones who are actually approaching the situation with a good deal of sense
3: there's also a line later that um Featherington says to her maid that this is just like getting her to realise that men are disappointing or something along those lines.
2: You know that you're old when you're empathising with the parent rather than...
1: <laughs> <laughs> just trying to do what's best for their children. Ariel, listen to your father. <laughs> Juliet, you should have just listened to your parents and we wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> <laughs> um where are we up to? Yet another Jade egg is the answer to this question. (laughs) And I mean quite literally because so we have Simon and Daphne walking along and Daphne manages to cajole Simon into telling her things that her mother has not told her about her own body and what a relationship between her and her future husband would look like. I actually love the setup of this.
2: Earlier, Violet has told Daphne that, like, the best marriages are where you marry your friend, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she says this to Simon, who is like, are you trying to suggest I marry Anthony? And I just realized that that is a little bit what our DMs this week were. <laughs> <laughs> what perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> There's a beautiful Tessida tweet that suggests... There must be some incredible angsty fanfic about M.Preg Simon, and um, and I was wondering in our DMs whether that would be gender-bent Daphne and Simon, or whether it would be Simon and Anthony.
1: In case it matters, though, I 100% think it's gender-bent Daphne.
2: I would honestly read either. Anyway, sorry, I just I, anyway. I I sidetracked us because it was too beautifully timed. When you touch yourself
1: You do touch yourself.
2: When you are alone you can touch yourself. Anywhere in your body, anywhere that gives you pleasure, but especially between your legs.
1: And when you find a feeling you particularly enjoy, you can carry on with that until the feeling grows
0: and eventually you reach a pinnacle, a release.
1: I know what the writers were doing right at that moment because it looks like he's saying come like come along but you don't talk about masturbation and then just say and that should help you and then add come as your next word and not know exactly what you were doing.
2: This promenade is above and beyond the agreement that they had. They've been mm-hmm. to the picnic and it's not a ball. So this is an extra outing that they're having because, because they are truly becoming friends. Also, he we finally get Simon unprompted giving Daphne a flower and he gives her that
1: single rose. And then all of a sudden Daphne's music gets better. So after this, Lady
2: Danbury tells Simon to stop wasting Daphne's time because there is a prince that is literally trying to get her attention. Meanwhile, Daphne decides to take her newfound knowledge and put it into practice. I'm always pro female masturbation on screen because we get a lot of like scenes that either discuss or show men masturbating in popular culture. There are a lot less of women. So yeah, so I'm, I am always pro female masturbation scenes. But the more that I think about this one, the more
1: reductive it begins to feel. The thing for me about this particular scene is that I think that they cared more about the aesthetic than they did about the experience. So they cared more about creating a vision of Daphne you know... Clutching that my...
3: her, her nightgown yeah. and the pretty music over
1: overlaid and, yeah. You know, and she does like this very gentle touching of her shoulders beforehand. Like, they're creating... She doesn't really the...
3: even touch her boobs and she's touching
1: her whole bodice area. Like, it's just weird. You know, that she's wearing this beautiful lace white nightgown. Like, it's a very aesthetically beautiful scene which is disconnected from the actual physical and grounded and earthy experience of masturbating.
2: I keep thinking about the fact that she's very prettily laying on her back.
1: And you would be over the covers if you weren't sure
3: about what you were doing.
2: Like it's but also like that's a very open pose and a mm-hmm. pose that is very much for being watched or looked for being at. watched yeah
1: yeah yeah I th- well i think you're right because i think it switches the gaze away to again to for daphne being watched. there was this interview i saw once with um alana glazer who was in broad city and she was she was doing an interview about the show itself but they were talking about female sexuality on the show in general and she said that it was it was important for them to show that girls girls are sexual even without the male gaze, (laughs) that they can be horny, just period, just starting from their own bodies and their own desires, not starting from some man looking at them. I think that the way that this scene is shot doesn't honour that. I think that it is shot as if somebody is watching Daphne, as if she is performing for somebody. It's performative
3: rather than private.
2: Mm. Mm. It's also, I mean, and this this is the romance novel of it all, the fact that she actually does manage to finish. It's there for the Violet joke as much as anything, but, like, this is her first time ever touching herself. I mean,
1: our girl was primed, though. She's been primed for some time. It's a very – I yes,
2: <laughs> but I also just – sex in the Bridgerton universe is very quick. Okay, so at this point, we're in the home stretch, and the whole ending of this episode is just a mess of heartbreak and different it people's is. hearts being broken. Simon and Daphne do have this conversation where she has masturbated, and now she's going to talk to Simon about – I don't actually even remember what.
3: Well, About that she goes a... somewhere other than Gunther's.
1: Yeah, exactly. She says I have an idea and I'm like and I was like, Ooh, what is your idea? But then Simon Progressively gets more brutal until the woman yeah. shatters in
3: front of her. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. So this is, this is one of those moments where like, Oh, I wanted to fucking throw something at him because, and I know that this is the point you're supposed to not like what he's doing. He doesn't like what he's doing. I'm having the right reactions, but like, it just, I, oh, it reads as a punishment for her having like, having had some kind of sexual awakening When you think about it from Daphne's perspective, she's talked to him about something that is, like, inappropriate. Then she's followed through on what he said to her. Now she's seeing him for the first time afterwards and he's telling her, not just don't talk to me, not just I don't want to see you today, but we were never friends.
3: Cause that's the first time she really reacts is when she, he says we're not friends and he realizes that's the end. like he goes just hard at it. He just, he didn't have to go that hard, Simon. I do appreciate they make him look tired. Like he's considered this all night, what he's going to do, but
2: dude. I think that what this is meant to be doing is foreshadowing that Simon is someone who will tell you a technical truth in a, yeah. in a technical sense we were never friends in a literal sense. We were more than friends. And this is something that he's doing and he's relying on her, not understanding him to be able to get mm. what he wants. Oh, uh, well played. Rudy. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is one of those moments that again, we're just going to put on the table <laughs>
1: and maybe revisit in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're creating here a one of those parallels that the show likes so much again because we have the parallel of Daphne and Anthony in the kitchen drinking milk and Anthony saying, you know, it's possible it's possible to not be with somebody no matter how much we may wish it otherwise. And then both of them sort of step up to the romantic plate and put their feelings on the line and both of them get shot down by the object of their affection, sort of very closely, very close together, or at least the show juxtaposes those scenes very close together.
3: But does Anthony have feelings? Jonathan Bailey plays as he's got tears in his eyes and I'm like, I didn't really have any indication this was a meaningful relationship for like
1: you, This is the only way Anthony knows how to be in a transactional relationship. Yeah, like 100%. He has no idea of how to actually like sit down and communicate. Instead, he's doing the thing that he does all the time where he has no idea how to manage his emotions, so he tries to tamp them down until they explode all over all the other people in his life. And this is what's happened. He's he has I think I genuinely think he has feelings for Sienna. He recognizes that those feelings are not conducive to the kind of future for which he has been groomed and for which Violet has set him up and spoken to him about. Pushes them down, pushes them down until all of a sudden he can't control them anymore and then they splash all over poor Sienna, who is literally just trying to live her life. And then she actually, you know, hands him his ass on a plate. And
2: as is deserved. The third heartbreak that is happening at the end of this episode is Marina receives a letter of rejection from George. Oh, my God. Like the cry. Oh,
1: But of course, it's not a real letter of rejection. It would have been interesting, I think, particularly with Lady Featherington's machinations, if they had held on to that little secret for a couple of extra episodes, just to make us as viewers wonder whether George is in fact that guy, or if there's still hope for their relationship.
3: That being said, without the scene of them talking about what they've done, we wouldn't have got that, the scene where it finishes about her eyebrows. And Polly Walker does something with her eyes for a good three seconds. That is probably my favourite performance of the season.
2: <laughs> I wrote, I hate this, but it's a very ever after. Because that scene <laughs> where she's sitting... Like that that moment where she is sitting and looking into um, what I assume is a mirror, like it felt very reminiscent of, and it might be the eyebrows, it may actually be the eyebrows, but it felt very Angelica Houston being that sort of kind of complicated character of, I don't like you, but like, I also kind of love you in the only way that I know how, which is to be like objectively cruel
3: Simon's being objectively cruel to be kind as well. I know. doesn't work, people. Having had her heart crumpled, stabbed, set alight, and stomped on, <laughs> Daphne's like, yeah, Simon, even though he just said all that bullshit, says I should end up with a prince, so shrug. Um, and ends up going to another ball and has a slow-mo descent down the stairs
1: looking perfect, as was her intent, like others want her to be. So the whole ballroom turns to watch mm. Daphne descend the stairs, including Simon and Lady Danbury, who are also in attendance at the ball. And the prince is talking to Cressida, I think. And he says, "He well, he mouths, excuse me, because we just hear the music of Daphne coming down. And he pushes through the crowd and he, br- he pushes past Simon and Lady Danbury. And Simon doesn't blink. His eyes are glued to Daphne. But Lady Danbury gives him the most impressive side eye that you have seen in the series thus far as he brushes past. So Simon is incredibly caught up in the moment, but Lady Danbury sees exactly what is going on. And then <sighs> Daphne arrives at the bottom Drops her fan and has a prince on his knees in front of her.
2: And that's it. The art of the swoon. I think now it's time for... What would Danbury do? In this section, we invite miserable book characters to share their problems with everyone's favourite agony aunt, Lady Danbury. This week's letter comes from Samia Brooks from Farah Roche's The Boyfriend Project. She writes... Dear Lady
0: Danbury, recently I found out my boyfriend was seeing two other women at the same time he was seeing me. You can bet the three of us bonded and publicly confronted him. You can find that on YouTube. We made a pledge to one another to focus on ourselves and our dreams and take a break from men for a while. But that was before Daniel showed up at work. He's everything I thought my ex was and more. But if we pursue something together, I definitely feel like I'm going back on my pledge to my friends. What would Danbury do?
1: Um, all right, so we have three women who are all burned by the same guy. They decide to form a little friendship group to focus on themselves and their careers and focus off men, which I think is a healthy way to get over a breakup. That's a really good way to get over a breakup, to focus on the things that you can control, rather than the things that you can't and to put all of that energy into yourself instead of into your relationship. So I think all of that is very healthy and very good. I think that that relationship with your, I don't even know what, what's the word that we've been looking for your, the fellow people who were also burned by this guy, your friends would not be healthy if, they hold you back from the potential of something great. Like if they're, like, I understand the pact that they made and I understand the fact that they they all pledged together to, you know, to focus on themselves, but I don't think that they would be very good friends if they then punished you, if you happened to stumble across something that could be good as well.
3: I think it would be natural to be fearful of trusting someone again Um, but the point of this friendship was to give strength to each other so you would hope that they would support you in not being a fear-based space and also trusting yourself about what's unacceptable and if you're getting a bad vibe then that person's clearly not necessarily a good person to have in your life
2: Talk to your friends about like checking up on him. Cause like babe, like you've been catfished already. You've been like you've been three timed. Don't be afraid to do due diligence and and um check him out.
1: And I think trust your friends as well. We I think <laughs> almost all of our Lady Dad Breed Vices always circle back around to try communicating (laughs) this one is going to come around to try communicating with your friends
3: I guess it's this idea that if you talk the truth that you hurt someone's feelings but not talking the truth and leaving things unsaid does hurt people's feelings as well so wouldn't you rather
1: be not misinterpreted well and these two girls like these two other women that are in this relationship this new friendship relationship have already been hurt by somebody keeping secrets from them. Mm. So if you, you know, if you wanna, if you honor those friendships, then you won't keep secrets from them, even if you are worried that the, that those secrets may disappoint them. But I want to read this book now, so. Well, Stephanie recommends it because she says that this book is great because it focuses first on female friendships and it's a contemporary with believable stakes. And the happy ever after ending is definitely earned. If you too feel like you have a character in desperate need of some no nonsense straight talk, feel free to audio record your letter and email it to us at bridgertonpod at gmail.com. That's all for this episode of what would Danbury do? We'll be back in a fortnight to discuss episode four, an affair of honor. If you haven't yet, you can also check out this season's bonus episodes. Throughout Season 3, we'll be speaking to some of our favourite experts about some of the major themes and techniques used across the series to bring you a little extra nuance. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out. If you're looking for us on Instagram, you can find us at WWDDpod. You can still find us on Twitter at BridgertonPod. Send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com or join the conversation with hashtag WWDDpod. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded land of the Gadigal, Wurundjeri, and Boonwurrung people, and edited by audio producer Rudy Bremer on Gadigal Country. Thanks for listening, and remember, W W D D.
2: What would Danbury do? Is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media/podcasts.